0: As the world moved from the 19th to the 20th century, the most significant alteration to the lives of regular citizens was the fact that the world was so much more global than that of their parents. No longer did people necessarily live their entire lives within 100 square kilometers. The expansion of rail and passenger ocean travel opened up a world of possibilities for people. As people spread out across the world in new ways, The usual issues that plague humanity followed them. Greed, arrogance, and the need to establish a hierarchy impacted every decision made by the architects of this new world. From this intersection of human nature and globalization rose the first major global conflict of the century known immediately as the Great War. Little did the contemporary individuals know that this wouldn't be the last world war, let alone war, over the next 100 years yet this was not the only thing that drew the world's attention inward onto a single event the Spanish flu took hold towards the end of the war and demonstrated just how closely connected everyone in the world now was the flu infected an estimated one-third of the world's population and killed an estimated 20 to 50 million people it's a hard number to pinpoint as the flu reached its peak in 1918, the final year of the war. Determining the cause of death wasn't necessarily the main focus for many of those involved in the front lines. North America certainly wasn't exempt from the effects of the flu. Despite being named the Spanish flu, the virus itself did not necessarily originate in the European nation. Many records in fact note an early sign of this flu developing in Kansas City at a military base. After that, there's about 4 or 5 other theories as to how, when and where the flu developed. Spain was a neutral country in the war, and it was not experiencing the same censorship of the media in comparison to the nations involved in the conflict. They were free to report the true events of the flu pandemic, and at the same time were also significantly impacted by the flu. It was from this open communication about the actual nature of this flu in Spain that it was titled the Spanish Flu. The Spanish Flu hit the hockey world towards the end of 1918. As the flu continued to wreak havoc across the world, the hockey season carried on. The NHL only ran three teams this year, the Montreal Canadiens, the Ottawa Senators, and Toronto Arenas. The Pacific Coast Hockey Association only ran three contenders as well, the Seattle Metropolitans, the Victoria Aristocrats, and the Vancouver Millionaires. Despite small leagues and a global pandemic, the seasons ran on, leaving Montreal and Seattle to battle for the Stanley Cup. However, at the hands of the pandemic, the series was never fully contested. For the first time in its existence, the Stanley Cup would not be awarded. While worthy of a footnote in history of its own, this Stanley Cup Final was not only significant because of its suspension, but as well as the circumstances around it. Bernie Morris, superstar for the Mets, did not play a single game in the PCHA Final or the Stanley Cup Series, but he did the following year 1920. Where was he during that time and what was so important that he missed a chance at the Stanley Cup? Then there's Joe Hall, the original hockey mean man. Hall won the Stanley Cup with the Quebec Bulldogs twice, and once with the Kenora Thistles. How did this late bloomer of a hockey defenseman rise to this position in hockey, and why did the pride of Brandon Manitoba not return from the final contest in Seattle? Hi, my name is Travis Duncan, and I hired the same hairdresser as Gritty for this social isolation time, and this is Storytime Hockey. For the NHL, the 1918 1919 season was played in two halves instead of one continuous season. The Patrick brothers, Lester and Frank, had come to an agreement through Stanley Cup trustee William Foran to partner their PCHA with the NHL to contest the Stanley Cup on an annual basis between the winners of their respective leagues. The Patrick's forwarded their regular season schedule along with the playoff schedule to the NHL The Patricks forwarded their regular season and playoff schedule to the NHL expecting the Stanley Cup Final to be played beginning on March 14, 1919. At this point, both leagues were struggling. There were only three teams competing in each. The First World War was coming to an end, though how much they were aware of this is unclear. And on top of this, NHL president Frank Calder was struggling to solidify his new league as the premier hockey league in the nation, and he was still fighting off challenges from the National Hockey Association and his counterpart Eddie Livingstone. The NHL announced that it was concluding their regular season on March 13th, 24 hours before the start of the Stanley Cup. A quick study of Canadian geography reveals that the travel time between Eastern Ontario and the western coast of the country to be well more than 24 hours. Even with the great leaps forward in rail technology over the past 50 years, getting across the country was going to take at least 4 if not 5 days. At the same time, Calder was falling under pressure of legal and court challenges from Eddie Livingstone, who was trying to gain access to a team that could compete for the Stanley Cup as well as a resurgence in efforts to re-establish the NHA. This was added to the regular organizational stress by franchises and ownership. The Toronto Arenas, for example, were struggling at the gate and were being embarrassed on a nightly basis by the other two teams in the NHL, Montreal and Ottawa. In an effort to save himself and his league, Calder split the regular schedule into two halves, declaring the Montreal Canadiens first-half champions with a 7-3 record. The second-half champion in the league would play the Montreal Canadiens in the O'Brien Cup Final, the championship trophy for the NHL teams at the time. The hope was that if a second mini-season was declared, it would rekindle fans' desire to come and see the Toronto arenas as well as give them an opportunity to play meaningful hockey again. Calder conceded as well to the Patricks, revising the season timetable on January 23, 1919, to make his league available for the Stanley Cup playoff start originally proposed by the Patricks of March 14. The Ottawa Senators won the second half of the season, as well as the league table, with the second half of 7 and 1, to finish with 12 wins and 6 losses. Montreal finished with 10 wins and 8 losses. Nuzi Lalonde with Montreal, led the league with 23 goals and 32 points in 18 games, followed by Ottawa All-Star Frank Nijber, with 19 goals and 28 points. Goaltending, however, was clearly Ottawa's strong point as Clint Benedict won 12 games with a GAA of 2.86. The second most dominant goaltender was George Vezina, another trophy namesake, who had a GAA of 4.27. Benedict played all but 3 minutes in net that season. His backup was left defenseman and NHL name Hall of Fame Sprague Cleghorn. Cleghorn pitched a shutout in his 3 minutes of play. The NHL final was not much of a contest. Audubon was missing their leading scorer, Niebuhr, for the first three games because of the flu. Montreal went on to win these games 8-4, 5-3, and 6-3. Upon Nybor's return, Audubon was able to take a 6-3 win, however lost the next game 6-4. Montreal won the series 4 games to 1 and were awarded the O'Brien Trophy along with the right to travel west to compete for the Stanley Cup. Newsy Lalonde had 11 goals in the first five games, continuing to establish his name as a dominant force and arguably one of the first true NHL superstars. The PCHA was facing similar challenges, and amazingly enough, their season held few differences from their Eastern counterparts. Vancouver won the league, however Seattle defeated them in the playoffs. The PCAJ used a two-game aggregate score final, and Seattle won the first game 6-1, while Vancouver won the second game 4-1. With a combined score of 7-5, Seattle was on their way to contest the Stanley Cup. It was during this series that one of our side stories began to materialize. By the time the Stanley Cup's playoffs had rolled around, the war had actually ended. The First World War was supposed to be over by Christmas, yet four years later hundreds of thousands of soldiers had died, and the US had shifted their role in the world to a much more involved position. Civic pride was at its height, and cities were ready to celebrate sports championships. In hockey, superstars were developing and starting to garner more attention. Newsy Lalande, Joe Hall, Bernie Morris, these players were setting records in establishing themselves as top-tier hockey players. Morris, for example, recorded 54 points in the 1917 season with the Seattle Metropolitans. Unfortunately, the western coast of the United States and Canada was particularly hit hard by the flu. Hockey arenas had been shut down and portions of the population had been quarantined in different ways for upwards of 8 months leading up to this point. At this point, at least 10 million people were thought to have been killed worldwide by the plague, and many people thought that the worst was behind them. This meant that fans would be returning to games, and with a championship not only being hosted in Seattle, but with the team having a genuine shot to defeat their NHL counterparts, spirits were high. In the PCHA Championship Series, Morris did not arrive for Game 1. His lawyer delivered a note to the team, prior to puck drop outlining that he had been, mistakenly, arrested for draft evasion. The Selective Service Act of 1917 was introduced under President Woodrow Wilson to meet his goal of having the US military meet a mark of having one million soldiers. Morris was a Canadian, originally from Brandon, Manitoba, however used Seattle as his main address. During the off-season, he had returned to Canada and the notice of his draft was sent to Seattle. He failed to report for his military physical. It was automatically inducted into military service on November 5, 1918, six days before the armistice was signed on November 11th. He was immediately charged with draft evasion. Originally, his case was dismissed, But in February 1919, during his divorce proceedings, he testified that his primary residence was in Seattle. The government intended on using this as evidence required to prove that he was eligible to be drafted and therefore eligible to be prosecuted. The Metropolitans managed to get through the PCHA final without Morris. They rode the hot play of Frank Foyston, including a hat-trick in Game 1. While the rest of the team was preparing for the Stanley Cup playoffs, Morris and his lawyers were attempting to find a way to free him in time to compete in the Stanley Cup series. However, by Game 1 on March 19th, he was still being held and the game had to go on. The PCHA and the NHL played hockey under different rules. The NHL still did not allow forward passing and goalies needed to remain standing. The PCHA, however, allowed some forward passing in the neutral zone, goaltenders were allowed to leave their feet, and they played the original seven-player game. The teams would compete in a series that would alternate between sets of rules on a game-by-game basis. Game 1 was played under the PCHA rules, and it worked in their favor. When they demolished the Canadians 7-0, Frank Foyston led the way with three goals. The morning of Game 2, Bernie Morris was denied bail as it was determined that as a military tribunal prisoner, he was not entitled to bail. This all but sealed the debate on Morris's availability for the series. Without bail, or some sort of judicial miracle, the team's best player was going to be barred from participating in the Stanley Cup Final. Game 2 fell the way of the Canadians, behind a 4-goal effort of Nuzi Lalonde in a 4-2 win. Game 3 was again played under the Western rules and the Mets crushed the Canadians 7-2. Frank Foyston again displayed his knack for scoring on the big stage and recorded 4 goals of his own. Game 4 of the series deserves to be known as one of the greatest hockey contests ever held. The full regulation game went scoreless as well as two additional 10 minute overtime periods contested under Eastern hockey rules. Royal Braham was a sports reporter for the Seattle post Intelligence. He was one of the longest-tenured sports reporters in U.S. media, starting at the age of 16 and working for 68 years. His longevity gives me a reason to believe that when he stated how spectacular the contest was, it was indeed that spectacular. He wrote in his article the next day, aptly titled One of the Greatest Hockey Games in History is Draw, a quote, They may be playing hockey championships for the next thousand years, but they'll never stage a greater struggle than that which held 4,000 spectators spellbound last night. Frank Patrick called it the hardest game in hockey history, and Calder referred to it as the most remarkable effort. To make the draw even more intriguing, was the goal that was scored but taken back. Mets winger Cully Wilson scored just as the first period came to an end. Mickey Ion, the Hockey Hall of Fame referee, deemed that the puck had crossed the line just after he had blown his whistle. Amazingly, in a series with two teams who scored so many goals, both in this final and on the way to the final, neither team was able to record a goal the rest of the game. A tie game meant that no one had yet to achieve the three required wins to claim the championship. They would continue to play Game 5, where if Seattle won, the championship would be theirs. However, if Montreal won, Game 6 would be required. Since the fifth game was tied, it was considered a draw, and therefore needed to be replayed under the same rules. Seattle of course, having seen that they were a far better team playing under Western rules, attempted to protest in an effort to have the game played under the rules that they were familiar with. However, it was only a half-hearted effort, as they were well aware of the standard. Game 5 would be replayed under the same rules as Game 4, giving the advantage slightly to the Montreal team. In Game 5, Seattle staked themselves to a 3-0 lead following an opening goal by Frank Voiston and then followed by 2 from Jack Walker in the first and second frame. Montreal was able to claw back into the game with third period goals from Odie Clegghorn and then two from Lucie Lalonde, with a tying goal coming with just under 3 minutes left in the game. For the second straight time, the two teams were headed to extra periods to attempt to find a winner. Fortunately, for the approximately 4,000 fans in attendance, they were finally given a goal by Canadiens left winger Jack McDonald. The series was now tied, two wins, two losses, and one draw, and a sixth game would be required. It was at this point that the Stanley Cup Final would meet its demise for this year. A massive detail that cannot be overlooked in this situation is the fact that the players were given a two-day break in between games. After playing Game 5 on Saturday, March 29th, they were given the opportunity to rest for the next game on Monday, the 31st. During the two-day gap, there was adequate time for flu symptoms to present themselves and a serious discussion needed to be had. Who caught the flu first or where Ground Zero was for the group is unknown, however, it is likely that it was focused around the Montreal Canadiens. Seven members of the Montreal organization came down with the flu. Defenseman Joe Hall was admitted to the hospital for treatment alongside Montreal General Manager George Kennedy. This led to a panic among the administrators. The goal was to continue the competition, however, with no players, there really was no option. And in a strange turn, when the Montreal Canadiens tried to forfeit the game due to the illness, Seattle GM Pete Muldoon refused the forfeit, not wanting to win the championship in that way. Perhaps it was because he felt it was unfair to the Canadiens, fans, and the spirit of the game. Perhaps it was because he didn't want to win on a technicality or perhaps it was because he did not want to win and forever have an asterisk beside his name. The consideration was even made of signing the Victoria Aristocrats players to play for the Canadians, however that never came to fruition. With 5 hours left until puck drop, no way to field a healthy and capable team, and fair play and sportsmanship reigning overall, the decision was made to cancel the game. From here there was never really any belief that the final would go forward. While some of the players began to improve quickly after this, there was still a recovery period before the players would be well enough again to take part in the final. An estimated three weeks would be required before they were ready to play again. While most of the sick players began to recover, two individuals did not. Montreal GM Kennedy and defenseman Hall had not improved. Kennedy was worsening and his wife was actually traveling to Seattle to be with him. Kennedy would recover though, before his wife arrived, but Joe Hall suffered complications. In many cases of the flu, both in the early 1900s as well as the early 2000s, the flu isn't necessarily the single issue, it is usually the accompanying illnesses that either exist or develop that cause issues. Hall rapidly developed pneumonia as a result of the flu. Despite being an athlete in peak form and the efforts of the hospital staff, Hall was unable to beat the ailments that plagued him. His mother, who lived on the west coast, rushed to be by his side while his wife and three children boarded a train from Brandon and headed west. They did not make it in time and found out via telegram that Joseph Henry Hall had died around 3 p.m on April 5th, 1919. Joe Hall was a fascinating hockey player to discuss because upon his death nobody had a single bad thing to say about the man. They praised his work ethic, pointing out that he had worked during the summers on the railroad which allowed him to purchase a house. Hockey was not a financially spectacular league like it is today, so this was a significant accomplishment for a player. They praised his personality and Frank Patrick said he had a heart as big as a house. Newsy Lalonde said he was popular with everybody. They praised his toughness on the ice, as the Vancouver Sun the next day praised his play. It read, As recently as in the recent World Series, he was hit in the face a terrific crack with a puck, and though it could be seen that he was suffering, he kept right on as if nothing had happened. However, during his playing days, Hall exemplified the player you love to have on your team, but hated if he was on any other. Hall frequently led his team in leagues and leagues in penalty minutes. He developed a reputation as an early version of an enforcer, yet could play and contribute as well. While playing for the Montreal Shamrocks, he once got into a fight with Frank Patrick, yes, the PCAJ Frank Patrick, of the Renfrew Creamery Kings. It left Hall blinded due to the cuts and swelling around his eyes. He was fined $100 and suspended for a week. Another time, he assaulted a referee and was fined $50 by the league and an additional $100 by his employer. While they played on the same team during the 1919 Stanley Cup Final, once while on different teams, Newsy Lalonde cut Hall's head, leading to eight stitches, only to have Hall return the favor plus an additional two stitches the next game. Nothing could bring down the adequately named Bad Joe Hall. However, the flu was unlike any other illness at the time, and the players had played significant amount of hockey during a short time frame. During the fifth and unbeknownst to the players' final game of the Stanley Cup Final, It had become clear that the players were either suffering or beginning to feel the symptoms of the flu, on top of their previous exhaustion and mounting injuries from hockey. Joe Hall did not finish the game, actually collapsing 10 minutes into the contest, and he was unable to continue. Those were the last minutes in hockey that Joe Hall would play, as he succumbed to the illness just under a week later. To wrap up one of the most intriguing Stanley Cup Finals in history, there remains one more person whose story has not been completed. Bernie Morris was still awaiting sentencing for desertion of his military duty. Despite being admitted unwillingly into the US military just days before the Armistice, it was decided that he still intentionally skirted his responsibilities as a citizen of the United States. On April 12, 1919, He was found guilty of desertion and sentenced to two years of labor at Alcatraz Island Military Prison. He was the first known foreign national on the west coast convicted of the draft evasion charge. By the fall of 1919 he had been transferred to a military unit and in March 1920 he received an honorable discharge. Just in time to compete for the Mets one more time in the Stanley Cup Final only to lose to the Ottawa Senators. This was the last time a West Coast-based team would contest for the Stanley Cup, until 1993, when the LA Kings fell to the Montreal Canadiens. The 1919 Stanley Cup Final was never awarded. The team split the player pot and attended the funeral of Joe Hall on April 8th. Everybody returned to normal health, save for George Kennedy, who fought a variety of ailments until his death two years later. Today, the space where the Stanley Cup victors should have their name engraved on the cup is still visible. However, it reads, 1919, Montreal Canadiens, Seattle Metropolitans, series not completed. The next section of the podcast will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for second round picks, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. The Saskatchewan River is a 500km river that runs the length of the Canadian province, divided into two smaller rivers, the North and the South Saskatchewan River. Northwest of Saskatoon, the river runs alongside the Trans-Canada Highway and the Yellowhead Highway between the two towns of Battleford and North Battleford. It was here that Colby Cave began his hockey journey. The two towns ran a combined minor hockey organization, giving themselves the locally used term of the Battlefords and also had their own Junior A team, the Battlefords North Stars. This is the same league that includes the Humboldt Broncos. Colby played with his hometown team until he was drafted 13th overall in the WHL Bantam Draft in 2009 by the Kootenai Ice. He did not play for Kootenai for two years and then in January 2011 he was traded in a monster deal seeing Cody Eakin join the ice in a push for their championship. Cave was traded along with Christian Magnus, Ryan Bloom, Jarrett Zentner, Steven Milan, along with a first, second, and a third round pick. The trade worked out in the end for Eakin as the ice went on to win the WHL Championship and compete in the Memorial Cup, and Cave would have the opportunity and Cave would have the opportunity to play major junior the following year. Cave would develop into a solid junior hockey player. His first season with the Broncos, he recorded 16 points in 70 games, and then 41 in 72 the following year. In 2013-14, he was named captain of the franchise by head coach Mark Lamb, and then he had two more seasons recording more than 70 points. He was eligible in the 2014 NHL Entry Draft, but went undrafted. His final year in the WHL, he recorded 35 goals and 40 assists with the Broncos to work his way into earning a contract with the Boston Bruins. He entered the professional ranks with the Providence Bruins in the American Hockey League, and he played two seasons with that team, earning the assistant captain patch during his second year. In his third professional hockey season, he was called up for three emergency basis games for the Bruins NHL squad. Cave was given the opportunity to play center alongside his former Broncos teammate Jake DeBrusque. He went pointless in three games and committed an interference penalty on his second shift. This three-game audition gave the organization an opportunity to get a clear look at the player who would join their squad the following season. Adding to the likelihood of him staying in the NHL, he was now a waiver-eligible player. The team had to make a choice to either hold on to him, or risk the chance of placing him on waivers and losing him for no compensation. He started the 2018 season with the Bruins and scored his first NHL goal in December of 2018, finishing an excellent passing play while playing 4-on-4 hockey. With Montreal forward caught Kotkaniemi in the box for interference, and Boston Sean Corrali in for holding, David Pasternak sent a pass down the right side from the point to Charlie McAvoy, who fed the pass to Cave in the slot, and he managed to slide it across the ice, through the legs of Montreal goaltender Carey Price. After 20 games with the team, the Bruins placed Cave on waivers on January 14th, he was claimed by the Edmonton Oilers the next day. He spent the rest of the season in the NHL, adding two more goals to his tally, and then spent this past season between the Oilers and their AHL affiliate, the Bakersfield Condors. He had one goal in 11 games with the Oilers, while recording 11 goals and 12 assists in 44 games with the Condors. After the NHL season was put on pause due to the COVID-19 flu pandemic, Colby traveled to be with his family in Barrie, Ontario. On the night of April 6th, Cave suffered acute obstructive hydrocephalus due to a colloid cyst. A colloid cyst is a type of congenital tumor that can range anywhere from as small as a pea to the size of a grape. The major concern with the tumor is its growth. As it is never cancerous, it can still build pressure inside the brain because of its central location. When the pressure builds to dangerous levels, it causes a brain bleed, which can cause death. Dr. Charles Tater, a well-known Canadian concussion expert and former emergency room physician, notes that this seemed to be the worst-case scenario with multiple points where bad luck seemed to strike the young player. Cave was placed in a medically induced coma following surgery to relieve the pressure on his brain, but it was not to be. Kobe Cave died on Saturday, April 11th. He was 25. Players from across the hockey world sent their thoughts and memories across social media the following day. Connor McDavid posted that he was an amazing person and brought energy and positivity into people's lives. His former junior coach recalled his infectious smile. GM Ken Holland acknowledged that he was admired and liked everywhere he played. Cave was exactly the type of player that belongs in this portion of the podcast. He was a fan favorite to many, a player that was never rewarded with selection in the NHL draft, but played hockey with passion and dedication enough to establish himself among the best in the world. A player who records one game in the NHL needs to be a phenomenal hockey player let alone one who records 67 games. I encourage everyone to visit his wife's social media accounts, easily findable should you choose to do so. Her heart-wrenching post discussing her emotions upon the passing of her spouse is a truly wonderful yet shocking expression of her love for the man. Lastly, I encourage you to find the various video and postings of the over 15 kilometer long line of cars along Highway 16, running along the banks of the North Saskatchewan River, of fans and players, including former teammates Eric Griba and former NHLer Jared Cowan, paying tribute to the local man and supporting their family through these trying times. Professional athletes are often cast as invincible heroes and gladiators. Colby Cave certainly played hockey that way, offering himself to his teammates to do whatever was necessary to win the game. I can't help but draw parallels between Colby Cave and Bad Joe Hall. Cave's personality was perfectly demonstrated on October 20th of this past season. While playing in Bakersfield, Cave fought 19-year-old Martin Pospisil of the Stockton Heat. Keep in mind, Stockton is Calgary Flames' AHL affiliate team, while Bakersfield is the Edmonton Oilers team. Cave connected with a right hand, knocking Pospisil unconscious and leading to concern from the bench. Pospisil took to Twitter to share that Cave had reached out, texting him, hey buddy, it's Cave from the other side. Just wanted to reach out and hope you're okay, buddy. Hate seeing that. You're a tough kid and I respect a guy that stands up for himself. Hope you have a quick recovery. He stated that he hoped to see Pospisil out on the ice again soon. Cave represented the best of hockey, hard work, determination, respect for others, and he earned respect from them as well. Rest in peace, Colby Cave. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, three-time champion of the Phil Kessel Invitational Hot Dog Eating Contest. Thank you for listening. Please click like, subscribe, or whatever other option is provided to you by your podcast platform. Every review and rating you leave behind increases the odds that this podcast will appear in someone else's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you next episode.